New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. We at New Dimensions thank you for your support. It is only through a change in human consciousness that the world will be transformed. The personal and the planetary are connected. As we expand our awareness of mind, body, psyche, and spirit, and bring that awareness actively into the world, so also will the world be changed. This is our quest as we explore new dimensions. Our guest today suggests that all living things die and go on to become other things. This cycle is simple, observable, undeniable. The certainty that our life ends distinctively and decisively is a hard truth to come to terms with. The truth is that no one fails at death. Total embrace is death's core dignity. So the advice is just this, participate. Resist the notion that you have total control. Resist the notion that you have none. However you can, with whatever you've got, participate in your care, in your dying, and your life. And there is resource to help us in the form of a most extraordinary book by Dr. B.J. Miller and Shoshona Berger, this precious volume is like having a loving friend by our side with practical advice on the medical, legal, logistical, and emotional aspects of an event that awaits us all. And that is what we'll be exploring today with my guest, Dr. B.J. Miller. B.J. Miller is a hospice and palliative medicine physician who has worked in many settings, inpatient, outpatient, hospice facility, and home, and now sees patients and families at UCSF Helen Diller Family Comprehensive Cancer Center. Miller speaks all over the country and beyond on the theme of living well in the face of death, He's also the founder of the Center for Dying and Living, and he's the co-author with Shoshona Berger of A Beginner's Guide to the End, Practical Advice for Living Life and Facing Death. Join us for the next hour as we explore and deepen our understanding and navigation of the complexities of this universal human experience of dying with our guest, Dr. B.J. Miller. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. I'll be your host. Welcome to New Dimensions. BJ, welcome. Thank you, Justine. It's a pleasure to be here. It's a pleasure to have you. I've just been immersed in this book, and you just answered so many questions Mm. and brought up so many issues that that concern us all. And mm. I know that you you make a, a statement, uh, the purpose of this book isn't so much to help you die 
as it is to free up as much life as possible until you do. So mm. get, elaborate on that. What? Why? Mm. What? What is that? Why? Well, there are a couple, a couple ways into that comment, Justine. One is watching how much energy many of us put into keeping death at bay, um, not looking at it, running away from it. There's an extraordinary amount of energy that it takes to keep reality at arm's length. I mean, so one is just letting that go and, and, and coming to terms with the idea that life includes death. It's not opposed to death. It includes death. And older societies, older cultures all know this. This is one of the tells that the U.S. is a, is a, is a young place. So that's one way of looking at it. Another way of looking at that statement is thanks to modern medicine, which in many ways I'm a fan of. It's my industry. It saved my life. There's much to say about it. Um, but there's a lot to critique in healthcare. And we're in this funny moment where our technology has advanced to the point where you, know, you, can, you can prop a body up practically indefinitely. I mean... So it raises questions about what is life, what is death, and so we have a healthcare system where at some point, you, you know, you, you probably have to actually say no, thank you. You almost have to opt out if you want to have some something approaching a peaceful death. So I think that's a that's a really important piece of this puzzle. I think in the, not too long ago, we could all just, just sort of trust our physician to do what's possible. And when the list, list of things to try ran out, then, then we'd say, okay, I'm going to move from fighting mode to accepting mode and off I'll go. That doesn't really work anymore. You could be consumed in the medical hamster wheel. Uh, and before you know it, the end is right in front of your face. Um, so that's one big reason for this book is to help people navigate the health system and the minefield that it is. But in the service of freeing up a lot of life for yourself in the meantime. So anyway, there, there we could talk for a, lo a long time about the answer to that particular point. Um, I will say one more thing about it, though, Justine, which is it's something that you probably know from your work already in the circle work. And um, I know a lot of folks who do hospice work uh, or people of faith. Anyone who's managed to keep death in their view, you know, on the one hand, you'll hear people say, oh, that must be so morbid or that must be so depressing. Well, sure, it's sad. But for the most part, it's also really life-affirming. When you come to terms with that your life is, is, is finite, this body's life is finite, well, then you start taking time seriously, and you stop squandering your time, and you start appreciating what you have while you have it. So this is the secret that a lot of hospice providers know. That's why a lot of hospice providers are actually very happy people and sort of filled with life. It's because they know that death is real and that their time is limited. Well, you're talking about the medical field and all, mm -hmm. all the benefits of it. You have mm -hmm. been the benefit of that. I'd love for you mm -hmm. to share a little bit of your sure. background and your story about sure. how you actually got into medicine in the first place. And so going yeah. back to your sophomore year in college. Yeah, you got it. Um, yeah, I had not been interested in medicine before I, before I became disabled myself, before I had an injury. So sophomore year of college, uh, right around this time of year, I was screwing around with some friends and hopped up on top of a parked commuter train. And I had a metal watch on, and I got close enough to the power source that the, the electricity arced to the watch. 
and that was it. I mean, it was a big, you know, sort of instantaneous moment. I was in the hospital in the burn unit there for many months. Lost both legs below the knee and one, my left arm below the elbow. You know, and came close. To, you know, part of me died. You can say, and I came very close to death. I became aware. Of course, we all know we die, blah, blah, blah. But it sounds like it's a, this abstract thing that's en, en, endlessly deferrable. But at age 19, I, I, I came to realize it, it was very real. And uh, we could go there anytime in an instant. So that was a moment that sort of acquainted me with death. Um, obviously, that's a, that's a very potent moment. But really, it was my, the, my recovery period, um, kind of grieving, and coming to terms with what I had lost and coming to terms with what I still had and realizing that I was learning so much from this experience. It put me in touch with the side of humanity and human nature in, in myself and among my friends and taught me how to rely on others and, 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 and find a way to actually celebrate the, uh, our, our dependence on each other. Uh, this idea that we're independent, I don't need anything, especially when you're 19. Well, that that's just so obviously just, well, I say obviously. Uh, it's so obviously untrue. We need each other all the time. I don't think there's an independent person that's ever lived, uh, ever walked this planet. So I, I got in touch with the sort of shortcomings of our language, uh, the uh, sort of importantly um, inaccurate sort of statements we live under, um, the framing of disability, you know, all this stuff. I kind of really got to dig into myself. I got to refashion myself, all with around this design prompt of loss right squarely in the center um, and grief squarely in the center, which brought beauty into the mix, which brought love into the mix, which brought interdependence into the mix, all this sort of beautiful mix. So... That was really what turned me on to the potential of healthcare, of being in medicine and working with people who were going through things that they'd rather not go through but had to. I thought it was interesting that when you there there were two things that you mm. did before you got into medicine mm -hmm. in college. Yep. You first took uh, some art history courses. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And and so I'd love for you to say what did you learn from that? Oh, that yeah. was that was an interesting choice. It was. It was. I mean, it's one of those things. I mean, so many. I was. You know, I was so lucky. I got amazing care. I had a family who rallied around me. I had friends. I mean, I had you know everything that could go well within that crazy context. I had incredibly good good fortune. But I will take some credit for a few choices. And one of those choices was to, when I went back to college the following fall, I, I, I changed my concentration to art, art history. Um, I had never made art. I had, I had enjoyed art, um, but I hadn't really thought seriously about it until I was lying in the hospital bed for many months and thinking on the question of identity. Like, who am I now? Am I Am I less of a person now that I have fewer body parts? Am I, do I uh, need to apologize for my existence? Do I, you know, I just, was I going to have a girlfriend again? I don't know. Well, who was I? You know, uh, it was basic down to the studs kind of revisiting who I was myself. And so that was where, that's where I found my mind going. And so the questions of who am I? What is myself? I mean, I suppose you could exercise those questions in a religious context, 
Um, but my mind went really more squarely to the art world, to the creative world. Because, well, I guess the hunch was that artists make things that otherwise don't exist. They take material, it takes stuff, things that they can't change and make something new from it. You know, they, they um, project their experiences into the material world. They, 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 they play with the material world. And that seemed like such a healthy attitude in a way for me. Like here I was, I was revisiting all my materialness and I had a sense that I had this raw material to work with. I had an excuse to refashion myself. And it seems like I had much more to learn from the artists than I did from anybody else. That was the hunch. And so that's why I went into uh, uh, study art history. And it was a it was, it was a really good move. <laughs> because what I really ended up learning, of course, was uh, perspective. You know, it's not what you see, but how you see it. And we human beings have this incredible talent, this incredible capacity, unlike some of our other friends like Maisie here, my, for your listeners, my dog is here with us. Um, well, who knows what goes on in her mind, but it does, feel, <laughs> it does feel like we humans have this particular talent of we can change our lenses. We can change how we look at things. And that's the way to change the world. Um, that's a much more reliable way than going out and trying to change the external world. You can change how you see it. And that's what I learned from studying art. And you can imagine the therapeutic value of that. Absolutely. I want to remind our listeners that mm -hmm. I'm here with Dr. B.J. Miller. He is the co-author with Shoshona Berger of A Beginner's Guide to the End, Practical Advice for living life and facing death. And if you want to know more about his work, you can go to the website. It's called the Center for Dying and Living.org. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Dr. B.J. Miller, and he's the co-author with Shoshona Berger of A Beginner's Guide to the End. That doesn't sound, that, if we just stop there, it just sounds like, uh-oh, uh-oh. <laughs> but, you know, one of the statistics that you had that what was mentioned in the book was 10 to 20% of us will die without warning. Mm. Only that little bit. When I read that, I thought, you know, mm. we all wish for... Uh, maybe a swift death and mm -hmm. no no suffering and right. and just kind of go out quickly with uh, very little pain. Right. I guess. Well, at least that's my my hope. Mm -hmm. uh, 
uh, sometimes I'll hear how someone's died and maybe they died in their bed of a, of a stroke or something like mm-hmm. that. And mm-hmm. they were gone really quickly. And I always say, oh, that's a good death. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But what you're saying here is that's not the way most of us are going to go. Yeah. So we have, as you've just spoken about, about this perspective we have, we have a, a choice as to how we orient ourselves towards this inevitability. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, let's just talk about some of the things that we can do that are very, very practical. And one of the biggies mm. is called the medical directive. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about that medical directive. What is it, and mm-hmm. and why do we need it? Okay, so uh, well, advanced care planning is sort of the process that we all that about thinking about your death, thinking about your legacy, et cetera. So advanced care plan, if you hear that phrase, is, is sort of writ large, this sort of process of preparing for your death. Uh, an advanced directive or a medical directive, uh, that's, that's a subset. That is a legal document. That is very much meant to, it asks several questions, what you might want for whether you'd want life-sustaining treatments or artificial nutrition, hydration, these kinds of things. But probably the most important question you'll answer on an advanced directive is who is your durable power of attorney for health care? Who is your medical proxy is another way we phrase this. And your proxy is that person who would speak on your behalf if you no longer can. Um, because as we know, things happen and you can find yourself uh, in a coma. You can find yourself un- uncommunicative in all sorts of ways. And then you can't speak, right? Then you can't, you can't relay your wishes anymore. And then you might be in that situation that you spoke of earlier mm. in that uh, uh, on some sort of contraptions that are sustaining yes. your life. Yes, you and, will. And Yes. And if you're in the hospital, that's what happens, yes. isn't it? Yes, that is what happens. That is the default setting. So what everyone's got to understand is if you don't fill out your advanced directive, if you don't make your wishes known in some real way, um, then you're going to go down the default pathways in our medical system. And if, on some level, of course, it makes sense that we'd want the default to be, let's do everything we can to sustain their life, their bodily life. I understand that reasoning, um, but the problem is we've gotten sort of too good at that, and you could you can exist on machines indefinitely, and that may be very much not what you want. So, so you have to sort of you have to realize if you do nothing, if you say nothing, the pathway you will be on is the ICU machines, et cetera, et cetera. That is the default. Those serve a purpose sometimes. I've been on those machines myself. But at the end of a long illness, if you're, that, those machines, you're generally not coming off of them. And then you put your family in a position to, to say whether or not they're going to, quote unquote, pull the plug. And that's an agonizing decision. So, so back to your question about advanced directive, one of the reasons to do this paperwork is so that you have a good chance of getting your wishes met, for one. But maybe even more powerful is, is it's, it's such a loving thing to do to your, for your family and friends, the people who are going to be gathered around your bedside, um, because they'll know what you want. They're not going to be put in a position to guess what you want and act, feel like they're choosing whether you live or die by pulling the plug. And, and if let's suppose if we are part of an HMO, mm-hmm. uh, you can file that mm-hmm. with, or or if you have a regular physician, you can file that with your physician yes. or your HMO. So it's not only your family that has it, but yes. the whole 
healthcare system can now log it into yes. this database. Yeah, a really important point. So practically speaking, so yes, do your paperwork. Um, but also, by the way, Justine, it's important to revisit it over time because so we change our mind as we go along, right? What you want right now may be very different from what you want a year or two from now, right? Exactly. Um, so you need, this is not a one-time thing. Um, you know, revisit this conversation over time. I think time. you mentioned in the book uh, that we do our taxes every mm -hmm, year. Mm -hmm. So maybe along with doing yeah. our taxes, we pull out that medical directive and we read it again yeah. and say, does this still apply? Right. That would be a great habit to get into. Or when, a, you know, at the time of a big diagnosis or any li big life events is a good time to revisit these things. Not just the paperwork, but the conversations with your family and friends so that they know who you are, what you want, et cetera. So it's beyond the paperwork. The paperwork's important. I want to circle back to what you said, Justine, is... Technically, an advanced directive is a legal document. Um, it's not a medical document. Um, and there's, a, there's, there's much talk about the distinction there. But let me just say to finish the thought that you brought up. Yes, do this paperwork. Make sure someone can find it. It's in a place that's findable. Make sure to share it with your healthcare proxy and your family. And make sure to share it with your doctor. Um, in fact, review it with your doctor because some of your thinking that's affecting your answers may be sort of medically impossible or maybe off, you know. So yes, state your wishes, but really it's about having a conversation with people you love and with your healthcare team and do that frequently. Your doctor should be asking you about this. Hospitals by law are supposed to offer you an advanced directive and inquire whether you have one. But very often it's sort of a checkbox pro forma moment that is not a lot of yeah. time is spent with it. Exactly. So you take this control. This is one way we can take control ourselves. And that's, that's another whole part of it is that you really encourage, like I used in the introduction, participate, to mm -hmm. be active. Yeah. You can't expect your, your doctor or your HMO or, or whatever yeah. to yeah. come knocking on your door. You've got to be proactive with this. That's right. It's a huge point. Like I think a lot of us fantasize. Someone, asked, someone asked me about, so where is Marcus Welby now? You know, like you know, <laughs> this beloved doctor yes. who knows us so well and looks after us. Right. There are still family physicians and there are small communities where people, everyone knows their doctor and their doctor knows everyone. And all that, that's still, that exists, but it's not the norm anymore by miles. And even if you're lucky enough to have a, uh, a very loving, thoughtful physician on your side, that doctor is pulled in so many directions. So even if you have yourself a Marcus Welby, the system as it currently stands and the need, the volume of need is such that you can't just assume that that doctor is going to do exactly what you'd hope for and want. There's just no time for that anymore. And you point out in the book that there's a silver, you call it silver, the silver tsunami, tsunami. Yeah. going on. Like of of people are are older and yes. and and they, it's like yes. happening in healthcare. It's like overwhelming the whole system. I'm sure it is. Well, we have a couple of things going. So we have an aging population. This is sort of the other side of the success of public health is that we're living longer. Okay, that's a good thing. Um, but we're living longer with a lot of illness. We're living with diseases and illnesses and disabilities that would have otherwise killed us a few years ago. Now we're able to live with. We're helping people live longer. We're helping people live with things that used to kill them. But that means they're not necessarily able to work. That means they are drawing Social Security for longer periods of time, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, you can imagine there are huge financial repercussions. But from a healthcare system point of view, that means we have 
a, a sheer tonnage of more and more mm-hmm. people who need more and more help um, who are also not fixable by definition. They are chronically ill. They're, these are, they're having, suffering with diseases that they can't be fixed, but they're still living with. So you've got this bulge in the population of people with huge needs. And so our, our already overwhelmed social and healthcare systems are about to get even more so. And that that fixed sort of thing, mm-hmm. there, that's you talk about that in the book. You really make a distinction between that which cannot be changed yeah. and that we have to work with, yeah. and then that which can be. Yep. And there's there's that's where the the idea of suffering. How can we choose to open up to that kind of suffering if we're in a chronic condition? Yes. Yes. And chronic pain. Yes. This is such an important distinction in terms of the experience of living with illness or disability. Um, that experience is doled out over time. I mean, to your point about suffering or pain, you know, uh, acute suffering, acute pain, well, by its, na- by its nature, first of all, there's some utility to it. If I touch a hot stove... I need that pain to tell me to move my finger before it burns, right? There's a purpose to the signal of pain. Chronic pain's a real bear. Chronic nausea, chronic anything is a very different animal because it's like your body, I got the signal, fine. I'm in pain. It's telling my body's telling me to do something different, to change something. But with when the symptoms become chronic, there's nothing to change. There's nothing to do. There's no finger to move. There's no hot stove to move your finger from. And so for the effect, the impact, I don't, your listeners, anyone who's had chronic pain or chronic symptoms of any kind knows it's a different animal and it wears on you in ways over time that are really, really can be brutal deflating, demoralizing, can change your identity, your mood, your relationships, on and on and on. So what to do about that? Well, acute pain, sort of like you can grit your teeth and get through it. Chronic stuff, you've got to say, okay, you're in my life now, Mr. Chronic Pain. I need to have a relationship with you. I can't kick you out of my body like I've been trying to do. So pull up a chair and let's work this out. Let's figure out how we can live with each other. You know, I mean, it, it really pays, in my experience, to con- sort of craft a relationship with the things that you can't change. By doing so, you have a much better chance of not suffering quite so much. You have a way of sort of diminishing the the, the signals that that pain sends. Because of the mere acceptance of it? The acceptance. So you're not resisting? That's right. Is that what you're saying? That's like, a big part of it. That's right. I mean, resisting suffering is itself so much the source of the suffering. Um, this is where spiritual traditions, Buddhism, other things, anything that helps us accept the reality we have, uh, to not go to war with the reality we have, anything that allows us to actually be with ourselves, be with our lives as they are, that's a very potent technology, if you will. That's a very useful thing. So in in your own life, with your own disabilities, that, mm-hmm. that without part of an arm and part mm-hmm. of two of your legs, your life doesn't look as if it's diminished. It's changed. Yes, right, right. Well, you bring up, that's such a good rhetorical point. It's changed. We, our propensity to judge and put value, it's better or worse, good, bad, black or white, all this sort of, we love to verticalize things. We're in, tra- in fact, we're the only thing we can say, just as you did, is my life is... Not better or worse than it would have been with four limbs. It's just different. The accident changed my experience. It took me a while to get there, to actually feel that 
and would not be lying to say that. So it took a while. But when I got there, uh, the suffering per se stopped. I can still have pain, but I'm not at war with my pain. I'm not hating myself or hating my body for being in pain. It's part of the deal. I've, I've roped it in to my experience. This is my life. This is not a threat to my life. This is my life. And so whatever can help us get there and see things as a change, uh, an, uh, uh, a horizontal move, not a vertical one, uh, I find that extremely both useful, but also kind of fascinating. And that's where also gets things can get very creative. I'm here with Dr. B.J. Miller, and he's co-author with Shoshona Berger of A Beginner's Guide to the End, Practical Advice for Living Life and Facing Death. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Dr. B.J. Miller, and he is co-author with Shoshona Berger of A Beginner's Guide to the End. And if you want to know more about his work, you can go to the website, thecenterfordyingandliving.org. B.J., I, I know that you work with palliative care. Mm-hmm. What is the difference between that and hospice? Mm. Great question. There's so much misunderstanding around this. So... Well, in a way, hospice came first. I mean, well, if we're taking medical history into account, palliative care is sort of in a way probably the oldest mode of care. It's just not been called palliative care because we kind of got seduced the last 150 years that we could fix everything with technology. So, but never mind long range medical anthropology <laughs> for a second. In the modern era, uh, hospice came first from the UK. Um, Cicely Saunders in 1967 created what's considered the first sort of modern hospice, St. Christopher's. And she sort of pioneered a new approach to care, which has since become uh, palliative care. Um, it made this sort of brand, this approach came uh, to these shores in the mid-70s, actually very close to here. The Hospice of Connecticut was 1974, but Hospice of Marin was 1975 just down the road here. Um, and that had, so in the 1980s came the hospice Medicare benefit. So when we say now, when we say someone's on hospice, we're talking about the insurance designation. So hospice now means multiple different things. It's an approach to care, but it's also an insurance designation. And that insurance designation means to qualify for hospice per se, you have to, a doctor has to say you have six months or less to live. Um, and to go on to hospice, you have to give up curative intended treatments. Okay, so there's a real forks in the road. So, uh, but the the Medicare benefit has been extremely successful in a lot but of ways But you can too. still have like pain medication and and things like that, and and it's not like all treatment is stopped. No, you no exactly all. It's all that when you're in a hospice, all that effort goes towards your comfort. So pain medicine, symptom can management, and of any kind. There's a chaplain. There's a social worker. There's a nurse. There's a doctor. Most hospices meet it out in the home. It's the way to get the most services. And into you the might home. still. 
be getting antibiotics and you, things like that. Right. So, right. If so, let's just say you have, um, let's say you have lung cancer, okay, and you're at home with advanced lung cancer on hospice. We're going to stop trying to fight the cancer. Instead, we're going to put all that effort into your comfort. But that also means if you develop a pneumonia, let's say, or get a, you know, a lung infection or a skin infection, you can still get antibiotics and treat mm -hmm. that. Okay. So, it's not such a stark line. Um, but it does pose some problems. For starters, when when we don't like when is the six month or less mark? You know, that's the, when do we actually start dying? That's, a, that's an actually a very interesting question. And it, it, there's nothing that's that's a legislation thing, not a nat nature thing. They say six months. And so also, so anyway, this sort of hospice benefit does a lot of good, but it also creates some problems. How to qualify for it? And anyway, long winded way of saying. A lot of folks who were practicing and providing hospice through the 80s started to realize, well, gosh, why, don't, why do we wait till people are dying to provide all this loving, supportive care? Why don't we get this stuff farther upstream? So in the 90s, palliative care as a field started to grow up, mostly in hospitals, but increasingly in outpatient settings and in home settings too. And palliative care sort of grew out of the hospice mode, but said, let's, let's just let's be concern ourselves with your suffering. If you're dying tomorrow or if you're dying in a decade, doesn't much matter to us. So basically, palliative care grew up around hospice to get away, get out of the way of the hospice benefit limitations. So in short, I know I'm going on here, but in short, palliative care is simply the treatment of suffering, all right? And within the context of serious illness, you don't have to be dying anytime soon to get palliative care. And to get palliative care, you can still get all that aggressive, intensive care in the ICU, chemotherapy, whatever else. You don't have to give any of that stuff up. You can still get all that support. So that palliative care is a treatment of suffering. Hospice is a subset now of palliative care. Is is palliative care reserved for the final months of life? So that's that's the distinction. So it's really important that people understand this so they don't over-conflate palliative care with end-of-life care. And it's important to know that you can switch off of hospice yes. at yes. any time. Like right. If you first go into it, That's right. it doesn't mean like, okay, I'm giving up my life. And, and yeah. I mean, maybe something happens. Maybe you have right. a spontaneous remission or who knows what. Who knows what. what? Absolutely. It's really important detail because it can feel like you're signing your life away to sign on to hospice. But by law, it could not be easier to revoke hospice. If for whatever reason doesn't feel right to you or there's a miracle cure or whatever happens, you can, with a stroke of a pen, sign off a hospice and your old insurance kicks back in by law. Okay, so it is not, this is not in concrete. Most people wait way too long to get into hospice. That's um, an important point. It's a really important point. Both pal palliative care and That's hospice. Right. That's right. We wait, we suffer way much more. We suffer much more than we need to. We got these services that could help us, but we keep them at bay because of misperceptions or misconceptions or fears. So thank you for clarifying these things. Um, and by the way, also some people are in hospice for a year or two. You know, just if, if your disease is just going very slowly, but you're still meeting criteria, you can, they'll sign you up again. You can be, you know, I've, I've met people who are in hospice for a year, year and a half. And I've met a lot of people who have graduated from hospice. That is, they actually started feeling better and came off of hospice and went back to the rest of their life. Well, I'm, I'm just, I'm, I can remember when my partner, my husband of over 40 years, uh, 
he had his leg amputated mm. below the knee. It was diabetes. Mm-hmm. And and he was actually in a really gangrene state mm-hmm. uh, in his dying. I mean, his body was just totally poisoned by that time mm. uh, because his other leg was going. And mm. it came to a point where I had, I felt that I needed to say the words to him that, that hey, this uh, we're not going to reverse this, mm-hmm. you know, and I had to say that out loud to him. Mm-hmm. I did it because as a, as a deep Buddhist practitioner that he had been for so many years, I just wanted him to be cognizant of anything that he needed to do mm-hmm. that he felt like he needed to do. Yeah. Uh, any any practice he needed to to do, mm-hmm. and um, and he he accepted what I was saying really well. I mean, mm-hmm. it was it was it was a much easier conversation than I thought it would be. And um, when I came back to his bedside the next morning, he had called hospice oh, wow. himself, wow. and it just like. It made me feel really good that that mm. he he had over the overnight he thought oh okay all right here's what I'm doing and he called it himself and oh, within three days he was gone oh wow but but wow. it was um it was a nice for me to know that I did the right thing mm. and that he had that support at the end and and also. The hospital didn't need, or it wasn't a hospital. It was a, a recovery place and like a, like a rehab center. Rehab, uh-huh. exactly. Uh-huh. And um, they they didn't need the bed right away. And um, I was able to call in a Buddhist nun mm. and an, uh, a hospice Buddhist hospice care person, compassionate care person, mm-hmm. and the three of us did a poa which is a Buddhist kind of mm. death ceremony mm. uh, uh, over Michael mm. there before they even touched his body. And mm. it just made me feel so good. And mm. the, the whole whole staff was so supportive. And there was a picture of Michael with the Dalai Lama up on his, up on oh, his wall. Beautiful. And it was so beautiful. Hmm. So uh, it was a, a good ending. And that hmm. reminds me, I mean, you can do these sorts of things. You yeah. can ask for them. Yeah. Uh, you don't have to just sort of death and rush off, yeah. and you can take your time. That's right. I mean, thank you so much for sharing that story, Justine, with you and Michael. Um, right. I mean, it's, it, you know, there is plenty of room for beauty at the end. In fact, there's, it's, it can actually be incredibly poignant at times. Sure, sad and other things, too. But, boy, just as you're describing, it can be kind of gorgeous, too. Um, but you have to advocate for yourself. You have to know what to ask for. So again, hospice, a lot of this can take place in the home. But if you find yourself in a facility asking to if the body can stay, it can lie and rest for a day or more, um, that can be possible. Not I, always. But I have to be. interject here, though, because this is really important. Mm. And you make this, mm. this you talk about this mm-hmm. in the book. This is where this book is so practical. It's also mm. beautifully written. It's spiritual, too. I mm. mean, I don't know if you would use that word, but it, I'm glad it's to hear you all say of that. that. Yeah. It's, it's the emotional care, too. But on the practical side, mm-hmm. especially if it's a home death, mm-hmm. you have to have a death certificate signed off 
by an official. That's right. And that is so important. Can yeah. you say something Hugely about that? Hugely important. I mean, you're not dead until a doctor says you're dead. <laughs> We're talking basically... about this legal system. Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, like so, like systems, right? I mean, they're meant to protect you, but oftentimes do the opposite. And I mean, obviously, it makes some sense that someone's got to declare your death. Someone with authority has to declare your death. Otherwise, you know, perhaps we would just be declaring ourselves dead all the time and doing all sorts of weird <laughs> things. But anyway, I mean, this is, there's some of these awkward moments where our systems, when they meet the individual, are just so goofy. But so it goes. In this country, to be dead, a doctor has to certify that you're dead. And there are words. Mm-hmm. There are words that you give us in the mm-hmm. book. If you, if you need to call, like like someone has died and you're mm-hmm. going to call 911, mm-hmm. there are actually specific words you can say. Do you mm-hmm. recall what those are? Well, for one, let me back up for a second. So one, if you're in hospice, if you're at home with hospice, this is this will all be laid out for you with the social worker. They'll help. They'll they help, help you. There's not going to be any mystery there. Right. Okay. So so one thing, another reason to, to where hospice can be so helpful. But if you find yourself at home and your loved one dies at home and they're not on hospice, well, you need to re- you need to report it. Even if you just went right to the funeral home, they would require the death certificate, etc. So you need to find a way to get a doctor over to the house. Generally speaking, so calling nine one one. Part of the problem there is that often begets uh, an emergent re- emergency response. Sirens blaring can be extremely disruptive. Paramedics coming in who, by law, have, they can use their judgment by law, have to try to resuscitate you unless there's a, a, a medical uh, a note saying otherwise. So there's a lot of, it can get really uh, sort of traumatizing, this sort of flurry of activity, someone coming rushing in. But if the death was expected and you knew it was coming, even before the death, you can call your local police station and let them know this is anticipated. And sometimes they can respond in a non-emergent way. Yeah. When you call 911, if you need to call 911, you can let them know this was an expected death. You'd prefer no sirens, and I'll have you know I'll have my advanced directive waiting for you when the paramedics yes. come and that kind of thing. You can kind of diminish the emergency rush. Which reminds me too, like for those of us who live alone, mm-hmm. it might be good for us to put maybe on the refrigerator or something. Yes. This big sign. Yes. Because if if the, if they're rushing in, if yes. in, uh, these emergency people are rushing in, they're yes. going to try and resuscitate. Yes, they have to, and they're yes. they're in a very difficult position. We, we, I mean, we're cutting up to a break, but mm-hmm. I so I want to talk more about this sure. and other things. I want to just remind our listeners that I'm here with Dr. B. J. Miller, and he's a co-author with Shoshana Berger of. A Beginner's Guide to the End, Practical Advice for Living Life and Facing Death. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions.
I'm here with Dr. B.J. Miller, and he is the co-author with Shoshana Berger of A Beginner's Guide to the End, Practical Advice for Living Life and Facing Death. We've just touched on a few of the things that you point out in this book. You can just, I know the listener can just feel the richness, the resource that this book is. One of the things I loved was a list that you gave. Let's suppose that we've had a diagnosis that's life-threatening. You have a list of what the doctors wish you would (laughs) ask. (laughs) Do you, do you recall that list? I do, in general terms, yeah. To contextualize this, doctors are stressed. They don't have much time with you. There's a gazillion things going on. They have responsibilities, a very long list, et cetera, et cetera. Not to make excuses, but just so you know what you're dealing with. Um, and plus, doctors, we're not trained to have very difficult conversations with, with people. We're not trained in medical education to evince the wishes of our patients. It's a very difficult and delicate conversation. And so very often when you ask, when, the, when doctors have been polled, why, like, why aren't you more forthcoming with your patients? Like, very common answer is, well, I don't want to, I don't want to dash their hopes. Now, there's a lot of problem with that response. First of all, it's not the doctor's, you know, hope is not my, as a physician, hope is not mine to giveth or taketh. You know, it's much <laughs> bigger than that. So there's, there's a big flaw with that response uh, right out of the chutes. But I get the point, which is we're sitting with people who are stressed out all the time. And there's so much individual variation about what one patient wants or wants to talk about versus another patient. You can't standardize this stuff so much. And so when you don't know, and you've got 15 minutes with your patient, you're not sure what to say, what to ask, what's going to hurt them, what's going to help them. So you, the patient, can cut through that so much if you go into these conversations armed with what, what you want to know. So for example, a great example is we use the word treatment all the time. And so doctors, will they love to offer you treatments. That, well, that's what we do. Um, and so you may be faced with a very serious illness, and the doctor will talk about all these various things, these treatments we can do. But treatment means different things to different people at different times. Sometimes we mean treatment to imply a curative, like we're going to try a treatment with the express intent of curing whatever you have. Sometimes we mean treatment to, to be, we're going to treat this illness uh, and we're going to make you more comfortable, maybe what they mean. Or maybe treatment means we're going to slow the disease but not cure it. So all in the word treatment. So one thing what you can make your doctor's life and yours so much better, you can say, hey doc, what do you mean by treatment here? And that can cut right through, oh, are they right through to There's like, is, 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 is the intention here to cure me, to slow things down or to just make me feel good until I go? That's a, those are huge distinctions. And if you don't ask, you might not hear. There's a huge percentage of people living with incurable illness who believe their illness is curable. And I know another question is uh, you can ask, what are the alternatives and, exactly. and what are the repercussions if I, yes. if I don't do this? Yes. What do you know? What can you tell me about it? Exactly. And it's so interesting to me. I meet patients all the time who are shocked to realize that they have, that they can turn, they can say no to their doctor. They can turn down a treatment. Like it's, it's stunning to me. We just sort of believe the doctor says, offers this thing, so therefore we should do it. And it's not really a choice. The truth is, you have choice all up and down. You can always say no to any treatment. You can't demand a treatment, but you can turn it down. 
So that goes to one of the basic questions that you and Shoshona really emphasize in this book, and this uh, is to ask ourselves constantly as our life progresses uh, in whatever way, uh, whether it's towards more towards our death or towards more living, uh, you say, what is my situation and what is important to me now? Mm-hmm. Those are like two questions that, yeah. that you advocate. Can yep. you speak about those? Well, the first one sort of gets at what's my situation? What's my scene? What's the deal? What do I have to work with? It's more of an external thing. Like, do, my, do I live alone? You know, am I going to need support in the house? Am I going to need friends gathered around? Am I going to need help getting to treatments? Whatever it is. Um, so if my situation is sort of what's the context of my life? What are my finances? Do I have endless resources or am I on Medicaid? Or what's, you know, what do I have to work with here? So that's the what's my situation. Everything is contextualized in this stuff. There's, you know, this is, there are no absolutes in this business. It's all relative. So get a sense of your context. Um, that's that piece. The second piece, what's important, like internally, this is the introspective part. You got to look inside, look in the mirror, whatever it is that gets you inside your own bones and says, okay, given what I'm, what I've got here, given my situation, what is most important to me now? If I ask a 25-year-old that question, you know, you'll get one answer. If I ask someone who's 65, you'll get a totally different answer, generally speaking. So there again, these questions, change. your answer to these questions will change over time. And I think if people really key, and this is where self-awareness is so powerful, um, if you really are in touch with yourself moment by moment, you you can kind of keep up with yourself. And what had traditionally been most important to you, maybe you've been a very aggressive person. I want to be in the ICU. I'm a fight, fight, fight. But maybe you reach a point in your life where, you know what? I'm really not interested in that anymore. I'm really let, ready to let things be what they're going to be. I'm ready to go a little bit more natural, whatever it is. That may steer you towards hospice versus the ICU, for example. That may steer you towards saying no to the next treatment and instead spending time with your family at the ballpark or something. So these kinds of questions can help you come to terms with you, what's going on in your life right now and can help you uh, uh, navigate the decision tree that's going to befall you. Treatment, no treatment, where to be, hospital, no hospital all that stuff that requires you you need to be in touch with yourself so you can convey your wishes and so the world can respond to you accordingly so it's really important to evaluate even on a daily basis uh yeah what is important to me right now i mean this is a good one for our whole life our whole lives absolutely this is how you avoid regret (laughs) that's right that's right so that brings me to that to the question of diagnosis and Mm -hmm. i know that the words i think are used maybe i read them wrong but prognosis Mm -hmm. so we have a right to not know our prognosis i think that you've you've written a whole article about uh to yeah. to know or not to know, yeah. so yeah. <laughs> that is the question. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes. So tell us tell us about that and what your thinking is there. So let me. So the context. So prognosis is basically the guess. More specifically, prognosis generally means how much time do I have left. You know, that's how we usually use the word prognosis in, in the medical world. Um, so the context of that question, I mean, a lot of us are curious about that. You know, if I knew I had a week left to live, I make, make, may, may make different decisions if I had, you know, months or years to live. So it's an important question, but it's also important to realize it's a guess. 
We're not, we in medicine are not very good at prognosticating. We have, we see patterns. We see, we can recognize patterns over time and groups of people. But of course, none of us is the average person all the time. And there are legions of stories. We all probably have our own or have heard of them where people were given a week to live and live 10 years or given 10 years to live and lived a week. You know, we're just pretty crappy at guessing the future. We don't have the crystal ball. So um, that's an important piece of the context. The second piece of that context is that doctors, again, are very uncomfortable sharing this news, A, because they don't know for sure, but B, they may crush your spirits with the prognosis. So the question is not really whether or not doctors are honest with you. The question, really the better question, more functional question is how much information is useful for you? Like what's going to help you? Some people are wired to like, hey, tell me everything you know, even if it's a guess. I want to know your best guess, doc. That'll help me plan. That'll that'll be a comfort to me. You can imagine some people being completely crushed by that information. If someone gives me an expiration date, even if it's likely to be wrong and I'm sitting there staring at the clock, that can shut me down and prevent me from living my life. So you got to, this is back to introspection. You got to be in touch with yourself. Like, Right now, for me to sort of get through my day and make the decisions I need to make, what information is actually going to help me? What information is going to hurt me? And I just want to point out in this book that that's just a huge resource. Mm -hmm. You actually uh, do a form that was... Yeah. Uh, who who was uh, Steve Shire? Steve Shire put yeah. out a prognosis declaration. Yes. And he has like four points that it's not just it's like tell me everything to I've decided what I want to know about my prognosis so ask me over the course of my prognosis mm-hmm. or or mm-hmm. the or I don't wish to know any information or I want to participate but I don't want to receive any information I yeah. it just it's all these shades of it yes within this that yeah. that or or I may not want to know now but I may want to know later yes so this is where you get to control this to some degree you can control the spigot. You can control the flow of information. Flow of information. Yeah. So there you're not you overwhelmed by it, and nor are you sort of operating um, unnecessarily ignorant. There you go. So this is where you exercise your choice. Is you could, with the prognosis declaration, just as you laid out. So Steve Shire was a was a widower of a patient of mine and became a friend and. Uh, he came up with this because as he reviewed his experience with his wife, Amy, Amy was a very smart cookie, um, but she was so smart that she was in touch with herself and knew there were times where hearing more news from the doctor wasn't going to help her. It was going to shut her down. So right. Steve, in her honor, uh, created this prognosis declaration, which we reprint in the book, which is something you can just print out and hand to your doctor. It makes it much easier. Your doctor will know how you want to, what I kind of just, information is I, I useful. Just, I remember that her prognosis was three years. <laughs> uh, she didn't know that. She never read that. And she lived five years, mm-hmm. you know, which was great. Uh, I, I, we've got to end this conversation. I'm just having such a good time. Uh, I just want to thank you so much oh. for being part of New Dimensions. It's a pleasure, Justine. Thank you. I've been speaking with Dr. B.J. Miller, and he's the co-author with Shoshona Berger of A Beginner's Guide to the End, Practical Advice for Living Life and Facing Death. And he's the founder of the Center for Dying and living, and that's a website you can go to, the Center for Dying and Living.org, or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, 
newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You've been listening to New Dimensions. This is program number 3696. New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You, too, can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. You can also subscribe to our free weekly podcasts and find over a thousand hours of audio dialogues in our searchable archive. New Dimensions is produced by New Dimensions Radio in Santa Rosa, California, USA. Our executive producer is Justine Willis-Toms. Our post-production editor is Lou Judson. This program was recorded at Strawberry Hill Productions, a full-service podcast production studio in Novato, California. We sincerely thank all of you who have supported us by being members of Friends of New Dimensions, as well as members of our affiliate stations. My name is Dan Drayson. On behalf of everyone at New Dimensions, whose endeavors make this program possible, I'm wishing you well. New Dimensions Radio is an independent producer supported by listener contributions. To find out more about the program you've just heard, to subscribe to our free weekly newsletter and our New Dimensions and New Dimensions Cafe podcasts, and to access thousands of other programs in the New Dimensions archive, please visit our website, newdimensions.org. That's newdimensions.org. Or call us at 707-468-5215. That's 707-468-5215. Please join us next time as we explore New Dimensions.